Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Shortest Path podcast. This week, we'll be speaking to Tony Piper, a leadership and transformation coach who joins us to share not only his wisdom, but also his own personal journey that led him to profound understanding of presence, self-awareness and the art of being authentic. In this episode, we'll be covering a whole host of different topics such as mindset shifts, moving from natural to normal, what it means to have that level of mindfulness and letting go, how to escape the need for external validation, how to protect your inner peace, and so much more. So, without further ado, let's get to the show. Being a coach means being able to connect with people, relate with them, make them feel comfortable. Hmm. When did you find out that you were good at connecting with people or being a people person, as it were? (laughs) Well, I think from an early age, I always enjoyed being with people. But I did have a an experience with a boss once who told me that I'd never be a people person. Seriously? Yeah. So I thought that, <laughs> that was quite strange. And I and I really paid attention to that because wanting to be of service to people and helpful and all that kind of stuff was just, just something that was instilled in me from an early age. And so I heard that. I was like, oh, better pay attention. What made him say that, do you think? I'm not, I can't remember the detail of it, but it was probably something to do with when I show up under pressure, maybe it's less easy to be a people person. When I'm not under pressure, when I'm more relaxed and comfortable, it's easy. Yeah. And I think that was, that was a reflection of, where I was at in my journey when he said that. Mm-hmm. I related to that as well because um, I noticed myself. So I've done this entrepreneurship program a few years ago and I remember at the beginning when the pressure was off, how happy I was, carefree, easy to talk to everyone. But then I ended up putting so much pressure on myself that I was treating it, rather than an, an enjoyable experience, I started treating it as if I was revising for an exam. And my natural mechanism when it comes to exam mode is head down, focus, no one chat to me, taking me away from who I actually am. So it took me a while to actually get back to being myself and finding, say, that confidence within me, if that makes sense. Um, So then for you, when you were in those stressful periods, was it something that happened naturally like all the time because of the work that you were doing? Or was it more like one-offs and high-pressure environments, would you say? I had I had an interesting career because I found myself at the age of 20 or so working for a startup company. And so I was like fresh out of university. And I had a lot of responsibility from an early age. Well, you do it in my career. I was being, I was the IT department. <laughs> and, I, and then I was the, the IT supervisor or <laughs> and then I was the IT manager. So I was always um, being stretched because I, I I had an engineering degree, and you know working with the tech is one thing, yeah, but working with the people stuff, they don't teach you that at university. So I was always finding myself 
in situations that we knew. And it's not till many years later that I, <laughs> I realized that there's, there are ways to approach things that are new that is helpful. And there are ways that are not helpful. And the not helpful one is thinking about all the things that can go wrong. Yeah. Thinking about what will happen when it goes wrong. Uh, would I be able to handle it? And would that escalate into even worse things happening? Yeah. So very quickly I found myself in a job where I had a lot of technical skill, but didn't necessarily have the sort of the coping strategies in place for dealing with things always going wrong. I mean, if you work in tech, if you work in software, I mean, there is so much unpredictability. And becoming comfortable with that turns out to be a good strategy rather than trying to have stop the volatility, if you like, stop the unpredictability. Mm. But again, that's all later in life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at the time, I was like in a role with a lot of responsibility, young, inexperienced, and and under quite a lot of pressure to, to make things happen. Why do you think they gave you so much responsibility so young? That's a really good question. <laughs> I guess I probably show up as somebody who's resourceful. Somebody who can can make things happen. Somebody who's maybe even a bit smart. Yeah, somebody who presents as, you know, somebody who's very able. <laughs> Someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going back to what you said around thinking about the things that go wrong. In my mind, if you're a young person in a place of responsibility, then thinking of all the things going wrong is a way to protect yourself or a way of kind of making sure that nothing fails on your watch. Yeah. So could that have been also part to help with your success as well in that company? Well, yeah. I mean, I, if things had gone wrong on my watch, then my <laughs> success would be quite limited. Yeah. So of course, it's very easy to get caught up in trying to make sure that nothing goes wrong. The interesting thing about that is that the more we try and do that, the more likely it is to go wrong. So you're trying to control things out of control. Yeah. And I didn't know that that wasn't a good strategy. Other than the fact that, you know, on reflection, it was like pretty miserable in places because, you know, you're trying to, trying to prevent every eventuality from happening. And turns out that's not very easy. Did you feel that happening like throughout the whole, did you feel miserable throughout that whole career? No, I, I, I had some periods of absolutely loving it and just seeing what we were achieving and continuing to grow personally and professionally and to grow the size of the company and the, my team and all of that, you know, it was, it was pretty satisfying. Yeah. But it was always an undercurrent of, um, you know, sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know. Oh, seriously? Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I had a, <laughs> I'm laughing about it now. I, I had a boss who said to me, he said, I just need you to know that 
you'll only ever see me when stuff's going wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now, he thought he was saying, I trust you. <laughs> right? Yeah. You're going to be fine. But I said to him, well, why would I ever be pleased to see you? <laughs> and he was like, you know what? Nobody's ever said that. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm saying it now. If I'll only ever see you when things are going wrong, why would I be pleased to see you? Yeah. And that began to get me very curious about the kind of experience that we have and how much of our experience is to do with other people, mm -hmm. seeing somebody walk down the corridor, and how much of it is to do with the stories we tell ourselves about that. Mm -hmm. And come to realize that actually the <laughs> most of it is to do with the stories yeah. that we tell ourselves. What story do you think you're telling yourself? Well, in that case, it was like, here comes, here here comes, comes, here comes boss, there's something wrong. And a number of times that would have been true, but there were also plenty of times when that wasn't true. But it's very easy to then get into this sort of generalization that you see somebody or you're in a particular situation and that means something. Yeah, now that I think about it, it's actually quite interesting because your mind went straight away to that point. Like, not that I might just see him around because he's seeing somebody else. So I would see him like he was just going to be around the office. But you thought, no, if I see this guy, it's trouble. And to actually have the balls to say that to him, that's something else as well. Well, <laughs> I think I was fairly, uh, fairly unfiltered in uh, in in that role in many ways. But and of course, he, he he didn't mean that at all. But it was a really good example of when we're under pressure, especially when we're under pressure, we tell ourselves a lot of stuff that it's not that helpful. How do you snap out of that circle? Ah. It's funny, I was talking to somebody about this this morning. One of the ways of doing it is to smile. Okay. There's, <laughs> do you know why we smile? No. I mean, because we're happier. See something nice. Think about the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, when do you see animals smiling? Nope. When do you see animals baring their teeth? When they're hungry? Yep. When they're trying to warn someone away? And when they're talking, they're communicating with each other, I guess. Yeah. Most of the time, it's to assert dominance. Yeah. Now, it turns out that the human smile has kind of evolved in that we can show our teeth and not want to eat somebody for supper. <laughs> but there's something about it that when we smile, we set ourselves up physically very different. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's chemical things happen, or maybe there's um, muscular things that happen. But there's something about smiling that actually changes your experience. Even in difficult situations, finding a way to smile about it is not just an intellectual exercise, but actually it does something physiologically. So that's one thing you can do. But you know, half the battle is noticing you're doing it. Half the battle is noticing that you're up in your head about stuff. Yeah. And you can get to the point where 
because we spend so much time in our up in our heads about stuff that we lose sight of the times when we don't and we forget that even that's possible and then we start telling ourselves stories about well of course i'm upset or angry because this situation <laughs> and uh, well could it ever be possible that somebody could have a different experience of that situation whatever it might be and if the answer is yes then it's nothing to do with the situation. You have to say that one more time for me. So, same situation, two people view it differently. Yeah. But then it's not because of the situation. So, how can it be? I guess it's the interpretation of the situation. Yeah. So then that goes down to the individual. So not the actual interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Separate realities and all that. Yes. Right. Have you ever been in a situation that has seemed different the next day? Yeah. Same thing. Same thing. And yet, when we're in it, it feels like the only thing that's true. Yeah. It's funny because um, my wife, when she was, she was having a hard time at work, yeah, like was bad. And I remember the period when it was like that. I was like, no, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, this and the other. But then two months later, she'll look back at that period and be like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And I'm like, do you remember what you was going through? Like the brain does something incredible where it can either minimize the situation so you can go through it again or maximize it so you say I never want to touch it again even though it might not have been that big in a deal in the first place um yeah the human mind is amazing it is amazing and that and it sounds kind of glib to say it but if one day you will look back and laugh about it yeah why not do it now because between now and then going to be having a great time but when you're in it it's hard to see that right yeah and especially then somebody else says well just smile it could be worse and you're like well <laughs> how dare you i feel you know don't try and invalidate me or try and sort of like um manipulate me out of my yeah. whatever i'm feeling <laughs> and so you know that's the thing i'm really curious about is that you know just as they say the worst time to sort of, in many ways, the worst time to get therapy is actually when you need it because you're in it. Yeah. And, and therefore your ability to, to see things from different perspectives or to find patterns that might be helpful, that kind of stuff. Actually, when you're in it, in some kind of a crisis, it's really hard. That's interesting. It's really hard. And you're going to see everything through that, that lens of what's going on for you now. best time to go to therapy is when you don't need it because then you can just talk about stuff yeah. and you're like oh I never realized that I could feel differently about that or I never realized that that person is just as uh, upset or unskilled at being a lover or whatever else it might be right mm -hmm. but when you're in it oh my goodness that's really hard yeah that's really hard that's interesting because like I feel with um therapy like when I've gone through it beforehand I, I don't know like when I go through these things there's like a goal that I want to come out of it with um whereas I feel like if I have no if I have no issues or nothing to discuss then what are we talking about I guess it's about talking about the low level stuff that hasn't got um to the point where it's upsetting you but you know maybe the 
well, they always leave my WhatsApp on red. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, what could that mean? So, yeah. Rather than waiting till it's got to the crisis. Yeah, yeah. You know, or the, why am I still working 12-hour days? Think about burnout, for example. I mean, burnout doesn't happen quickly. It's, it's, the, by, it's, the, it's the outcome of uh, months, if not years, of something not being quite right. And we don't talk about it generally until it's affecting our ability to get out of bed or we're about to push the effort button to quit the job. We don't talk about it when it's like, well, that's the sort of third week that you've worked till 11 o'clock at night. Honey, what's that about? Oh, well, just just this week. Oh, next week it'll be because somebody's on holiday and the week after that it'll be because... We don't explore that at the time when we could do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, you know, we burnt out. And it's like, oh, now what? I mean, the worst time to deal with burnout is when you're burnt out. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to engage with thinking about the situation or what your options are. You just want to hide. Yeah. Did you have that experience during your working career? Yeah, I've had several experiences of that, actually. One of them, there was a lot going on in life, and it just all got a bit much. And there was a lot of stuff going on in personal life, and there was stuff going on at work. And then all of a sudden, there was something major at work that was, it was to do with, um, you know, the, the visit from international head office. And it's like, I really can't handle this right now. I'm barely sort of managing to get through the day and answering auditors about this, that and the other is just like going to be really hard. <laughs> and and that was probably the right call as well. The other thing to say about burnout is that it makes sense. It's 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 one way of our bodies letting us know that we need to do something. Other examples of that, well, and the, well, this is a frame through which you can see it, right? I mean, this is all description, not prescription. <laughs> but, you know, in a way, some of the sort of the illnesses that affect us, in a way, you could see them as like, oh, actually, it's your body trying to, you know, take you out of the situation. You know, if you're physically unwell with something, then maybe that's your body saying, nope. <laughs> You need to do something. And if I can't get your attention up here, I'm going to get it here or wherever else, right? See, I, I always used to see burnout as, for lack of a better word, training. So getting your body used to working in like intense environments or like stretching or having that that bit of stamina that's needed to kind of get the work done or get the job done. Um, so I wonder if there's a degree of like how like how do you get the balance right between stretching yourself without burning out? Without but I feel like you have to burn out in order to, in order to see what your limit is. Or would you think? Well, maybe that's one way of doing this, like going bankrupt to figure out how much money you had. I mean, fair enough. No, I mean you you could do that. I mean, <laughs> that I mean there might be other ways. 
and you know burnout is there are all sorts of dimensions to it right one of which is just about being physically exhausted one of which is about having run on adrenaline for too long you know we're not designed to work for more than about 10 minutes a day on adrenaline and yet in some roles for some people at some times it might be 24 hours and so there's that you know adrenal exhaustion that happens from when you're just being overstimulated looking for a bear that still hasn't arrived yeah but they might just be around the corner um there's emotional burnout from constantly feeling a certain way about something or somebody or oneself there might be an intellectual burnout that's come from like just trying to keep up with learning new things or deal with unfamiliar situations and having to keep learning in order to cope with them there's all sorts of dimensions to it and some of those dimensions I guess are easier to anticipate maybe or could be trained yeah to some extent I mean and again when you're in it the last thing you needed to hear was that there was something you could have done to prevent it sure it's like well if you just stop being a people pleaser yeah so from your perspective like when you were working so could you how long did you work at the doing what you were doing IT for Oh, so that job was 15 years. Same company? Yeah. How did you, did you feel like something was missing? Or did you, like, what made you stay with that company for such a long period of time rather than, say, switching out and moving elsewhere? Because I imagine during the time, tech was relatively in its nascence, so you could have got paid better elsewhere. You could have had way greater opportunities in other places. What made you decide to stay there? Well, I was getting paid good money and I had good um, good share options and, and all that kind of stuff um, and I had a company car and you know this that it's like status why, why would I go anywhere else <laughs> that doesn't make sense or well, it didn't make sense so there are often a lot of things that keep us in situations maybe that are not that healthy for us and certainly all of all of those uh if you like those trappings of success they can be the thing and if you're in a miserable job but getting good money for it i mean it's better than nothing i mean there's people who are in miserable jobs who don't get good money for it and am i being ungrateful and then, what's wrong with me? I can't be happy and I'm earning all this money and I have this, that and the other. Why am I not happy? There must be something wrong with me. Yeah. You know, that's what, that's what keeps people stuck. So how did you make the leap then to the next opportunity? <laughs> Actually, I didn't. It was, um, I had an opportunity to go and live in another country. Cool. Well, a couple of years in where? Canada. Nice. And that was the quickest yes I think I've ever said. <laughs> and so I went to do that for a couple of years. How was that? And it was great. And what was even greater about it was, of course, when moving on from that job, everybody was like, well, if I was in your position, I would have gone to Canada too. Yeah. So it was like the perfect 
perfect opportunity rather than I'm going to leave and then all the kind of the wrench that happens with that, maybe the betrayal as well, maybe the uh, what's wrong with you, aren't you grateful, <laughs> the kind of stuff that either I might be saying to myself or that others might. So it was the perfect excuse. So if you want to, if you want to quit a high-paying, high-rewarded job that you don't like, get an opportunity to live somewhere else. That's what. I, no, <laughs> we need something to kind of like switch your perspective, or like just give you a new challenge, maybe potentially. Well, that one was more like the, just the perfect excuse. It was like because by then I think I'd realised that. Well, first of all, that I'd been there such a long time and that that's probably not a great idea and that 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 was the perfect opportunity yeah the perfect excuse and so was it when you were there that you decided to maybe go into coaching or when did coaching come into come, come into it well i become really interested so after the you'll never be a people person yeah uh, was that you in canada or was that after no that was that was before canada so that was in this this job we were talking about um that got me really interested yeah and I, I ended up going on a course and it was it was called organizational politics and it management interesting name with basically street smarts for geeks <laughs> it was a whole load of classic leadership stuff but somehow packaged in a way that was accessible to me at least and in what way there was something about the way it was taught that just really landed. Okay. You know when you see or you hear something and you just know that that's true? That's for you, yeah. It's that. And they were really good at that. Like, really good. So, of course, everything landed. And what got me really curious was that a few years later, I went on a, well, the whole board of the company went on a leadership development program at another place. And it, ostensibly, it was the same content. Have you ever seen the film Dead Poets Society? No. Okay. I love it, not least because Robin Williams plays him. Oh, yeah, I've seen it, actually. But I remember watching it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, do you remember the beginning? No, I'm terrible with, like, films, okay. but I know I watched it, yeah. Well, me too. But th this one stuck. And, and at <laughs> the beginning of the film, Robin Williams arrives at the prep school where he's uh, teaching. First day of term. And boys get out their book he's an English teacher mm -hmm. the boys get out their book and he asks one of them to start reading I'm remembering this right and they start reading it and it was a whole load of stuff that talked about measuring the greatness of a poem on two axes it's like and I can't remember what the axes were for life for me and, and so Robin Williams character the Maverick teacher said boys rip that page out mm -hmm. it was kind of that the, 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 the second leadership thing that I went on just felt a bit like that. It's like, here's the graph of how to inspire people rather than here's how you're going to feel when you're inspired and this is how you're going to feel when you're inspiring people or whatever else you're doing, right? Yeah. It was a very, one was very much head, the other was heart. And that got me really curious because I went back to the people who taught the first course and I said, how come you taught the same stuff it was all about leadership and how to how to how to be a good leader. 
And they said, oh, we don't normally talk about this. So, of course, I leaned in. <laughs> but we'll tell you. So, anyway, so they went on to talk about um, how they'd taught it. And that got me very interested in the world of personal development. And it's like, how can you teach something in a way that's very different? And, and again, it's the same content, but having a different experience of it. Now, of course, there would have been some people who were on the second course who are having a great experience of it. That's all I need is the 10-point checklist of how to inspire somebody. That's all I need is the, the graph showing where the sort of like the sweet spot is. But it wasn't for me. I was like, well, if you could teach the same thing, same concept, get the same outcome in two different ways, ooh, that's really cool. So that then got me very interested in just the subjectiveness of it all. And of course, you know, working in technology is all very objective. Mm. Like bits and bytes, ones and zeros. And this people side was not that. And of course, I came to realize that most of, for anybody working, particularly working in technology, but this applies to lots of other professions, lots of other roles, you know, if your job is about helping under somebody understand what they want, helping them understand what they need, not what they want, helping them understand how they might get that and how you might help them get that, how you check understanding, how they check understanding, how you push back when there's bad news because something's going to be late over budget or any other downfall. They're, and so on and so forth, they're all people skills, right? They're about building a connection with somebody and helping them get what they want and doing it in a way, hopefully, that is about you creating value and feeling fulfilled and, and all of that rather than just getting what you want because somebody's cracking a whip. Yeah. And, of course, in the world of tech... Again, nobody teaches you how to do that. And nobody teaches people on, if you like, the commissioning side of this, the user or the, the sponsor, the stakeholder. Nobody teaches them how to do that either. Why, why do you think that? Nobody's thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, well, yeah, I just need this website that does this. And so that's the stakeholder. And then the, the person on the delivery side says, yeah, I think I know what you mean by that. And they'll have a whole load of assumptions. And <laughs> before you know it, you know, you, you built hopefully uh, really well, don't do the wrong thing. Um, but you're not wanted to say, is this what you meant? Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, I wouldn't know if that's what I meant when I recognize it, because actually I've realized I want something else now. And it's like, before you know it, you've got all this um, assumption on assumption on assumption and awkward communication. And, you know, you don't get, up, don't get what you were looking for. But it's only because we've just never really focused on it. And so do you think it would, that was the secret source of that first training company compared to the second? Like knowing how to change the content in a way whereby it's more relatable to the listeners, like meeting them at a point of need rather than point of want. Yeah, it, it, it was about building a connection with somebody before you try and teach them whatever you're trying to teach them, ostensibly. Yeah. Right. If if you're trying to teach 
somebody with, without knowing where they're at, you can try and do it, but with maybe limited success. If you really know or have a way of knowing in real time how somebody's responding to what you're saying, what connections they're making in their head, where are their moments of doubt and insecurity, and can you spot them and can you anticipate them so they don't have to put their hand up and say, I'm like, I don't get it. If you're really good at that, then it stands to reason that whatever it is that you're teaching is going to... It's going to land better. So you think that's a skill that can be taught then? In terms of being able to like anticipate or... Because I feel like what you described is a bit of a superpower um, where you can like anticipate people's feelings, their doubts, what what's on their mind, especially to do it in a way that doesn't sound condescending. Yeah. You know? Um, and also to do it in a way where you can speak to like a large group of people and connect with like a majority I think that's I think that's 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 tough that's that's quite that's quite hard do you think that's something that can be taught I think a lot of it does come from presence and just noticing that there is somebody on that table over there who's like looking a bit quizzical and knowing that it might be about wondering what they're going to have for dinner or it might be about what you've just said as a trainer or but creating that kind of space where well First of all, where people do feel safe to put their hand up and say, I don't get it. Yeah. Creating an environment of learning that is fun rather than stressful. Helping people build on their own experiences that they've already had rather than just telling them outright and hoping they make the connection. So it, in a way, it's more... It might be easy to stand up at the front and say, here's the graph. Here's how you measure the greatness of a poem. But if you don't have that kind of interaction, if you don't want to help people explore it from their perspective, then just maybe maybe you just don't get the same level yeah. result. If, if you're present when you're teaching, if you're curious, if you're helping other people be curious, it's more likely to go well. So that doesn't sound like such a superpower to me. Because it's not like you're some Svengali who's like, oh, yes, you over there. So I've noticed you've been tapping. It's not that, right? It's about just being present to, in the space, to the people, and talking about sharing what you know. Good. So then for you, you had that experience with the training, um, the different types of training. So that kind of inspired you to like learn more around how to connect with people, how to teach the people. Um, so were you like still working and doing like training courses or how were you thinking about the next steps in your career? I was kind of exploring it on the side until I eventually got to the point in a good number of years later where I was like, oh, actually, these are the only problems that I do need to solve um, working in, in a tech organization with tech people doing tech things for stakeholders. If, if people are in a good connection with each other, 
if people feel safe to challenge or to explore or to propose alternatives, if people don't mind giving news without necessarily giving it the label bad, if people are not afraid of being told something has changed or afraid to tell people somebody that something has changed, the chances are it's all going to go a lot better. You think about it, ask me to build something. If I don't check my understanding, well, maybe you don't understand what you want anyway to start with. I mean, that's entirely possible. I mean, there's no slight on you. There's no shade on you. No, but it happens a lot where people ask for something to be done and they have no idea what they're asking to be done. Yeah. yeah. And it might be the first time that you, you say it, that you that you have a new insight about that. It's like, oh, actually, what I really need is yeah. this other thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Can I help you understand what it is you want to the point where it looks like a good idea to you rather than just something you've been told you need to ask for or something that somebody else asked for in a previous life. Can I check my understanding of what you said you want? Can we explore the gaps? If I've got a different idea about how to solve the problem, are you open, open to it? How do you want to know about changes? If something's late, over budget, not feasible, and so on and so forth, right? Now, if I can master those, then I've probably got a higher chance of delivering what it is you want me to deliver in a way that's okay for you and in a way that's okay for me. So then that's when you were like, did you try and do some coaching within internally then? Yeah, so I continued to invest in coaching training stuff until eventually I got to a point where I'm like, actually, I want to do this full time. Because after, I think it was like 27 years, <laughs> it's old. Uh, it's like, there must be a different way of doing this. Rather than having these conversations about why that, that ticket hasn't been done that way why this thing's late or doesn't work how we thought it was going to work or, you know, it turns out you can't do that. What if we can move the conversation on? So I continued to explore this for myself anyway. And then just one day I was like, oh, you know what, I just like to do this full time. Was there like a particular epiphany moment or a straw that broke the back or you're like, I'm out? I can't remember one actually. Yeah. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like a push the button. <laughs> it was just more of waking up with a realization that it, yeah it was more of an insight it was just like a shower thought yeah so how comes i didn't have that shower thought 20 years ago yeah. <laughs> well the truth is about shower thoughts the way to have shower thoughts is not to just force yourself into the shower right <laughs> <laughs> just have the thought <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um yeah, some people with a massive water bill because <laughs> they're like, I'm having so many showers and I'm I'm all wrinkly and uh, you know run out of shampoo and yet I'm still not having any great ideas. Well, oh, okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. But <laughs> no, I think I just woke up one day and I thought, you know what, I'd like to do that. So that's when I started to change uh, what I did. And nowadays I work with people in tech roles, people in leadership roles. 
uh, people from tech backgrounds in leadership roles. Helping them go, yeah, kind of upstream from all the doing yeah. that we're doing. Got it. Do you remember how you got your first client? Oh. Well, technically my first client was, was an internal. I worked internally as a coach for a while. So how did that happen? Because presumably you told them that, look, guys, I'm no longer going to be your director. <laughs> I'm going to do some other stuff now. And I still want you to pay me for it. <laughs> well, one of the things I've found is that people are generally very keen to help in life. And asking people to help in a way that's not threatening, but just like, can you help me or not? It was kind of that conversation. It was, this is what I want to do. Can you help? And if not, that's fine too, because I'll go and find another way to do it. Yeah. And turn around and they said, oh, actually, yeah, not full time. And we'll find you something else to do. It's like, no, 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 don't worry about that. But part time, could I do that? And it's like, yeah, sure. So I did. Well, so asking for help is such an underrated thing. So underrated. And yet people genuinely, generally, genuinely are pleased to help if they can. If they can't, they can't. It's hard to ask for help sometimes. Like when you're yeah. in a position of seniority or in a position of everyone expects you to have everything sorted out. Like you are the role model. You should know what's yeah. going on. How can you be asking other people help? But what I've come to realize is that being able to ask for help actually shows that you're relatable, that you're normal, that you're curious and you're willing to learn. And yeah. you're even empowering the next person because you're giving them a moment where they can teach you. And so they themselves get to develop as an individual. Yeah. So yeah, my, my thinking of help has actually changed a lot. You and me both. And for some people asking for help is a frame around, you know, weakness or yeah. you know, what's lacking. For some people asking for help is, is showing vulnerability. I mean, the cool thing about that is that if you can model that for your, you know, if, if you're in any kind of leadership position, if you can model that for your team, mm -hmm. it will pay great dividends. Because the alternative is when people don't ask for help and then they get stuck in something yeah. they, they don't understand or is being unpredictable or, and they don't ask for help and they kind of style it out because it would be too shameful to ask for help. And then all of a sudden you as a leader, you're dealing with something that's just blown up yeah. rather than, you know, something that could have been managed, something that the person could have probably sorted out for themselves if they'd had you alongside them. How would you describe your like coaching style coaching <laughs> technique? Yeah. Uh, it's funny because when I first trained as a coach, it seemed that coaching was all about goals and milestones and tasks and actions. That's how it feels. From an outsider, but yeah. And, and that works to some extent. I'm always curious though about when we have all those 
tasks and actions and milestones and all the rest of it. What about the times we still don't do the thing? Right? What's that about? And most of my coaching now is around helping people. I use the word upstream. Go upstream from that a bit. Let me explain. I can have all the clarity about you know, how to do a certain thing. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it. One of the reasons I won't do it is because it just doesn't make sense to me. Not, I don't understand how to do it, but it doesn't make sense to me to do it. Elaborate. Or what I'm currently doing makes more sense. Okay. Right. One of the things that, as a side note, one of the things that's brought me a lot of peace in recent years is this understanding that, that people are always doing what makes most sense to them at their current level of understanding. People are always doing what makes most sense to them at their current level of understanding. Me, you, the van driver who just, you know, cut you up on the way or somebody that you're uh, uh, ranting at on the telly or Twitter, right? All of us, we're doing what makes most sense. Now, the reason it's brought me a lot of peace is that normally when somebody or ourselves doesn't does something that doesn't make sense to us we get into judgment about it one way or another yeah and it turns out that that judgment is not a very helpful way to be unless you're a judge if you're a judge keep judging but for most of us it's not that helpful not compared to being curious what must be true for that to make sense and then be like, yeah, but what about, you know, and then talk about something, by all accounts, terrible. Well, the reality is, to that person, what they were doing made sense at the time. Might not make sense to you or I. Might not make sense to them in the cold light of day. And it's not to excuse it, but it's to explain it. To say that whatever they did at the time made sense. How does, what's the benefits of thinking of it that way? Well, have you ever been curious? Yeah, but I mean, if someone, to be playing devil's advocate. So like if, if someone, so like, okay, today, for example, I was um, driving to get some paint, Narrow Road. Yeah. And um, I don't really get this. It was so vivid. Like on a, you've got cars parked on either side and you've got me going this way, people coming up this way. Yeah. And I saw a guy walk into his car happy, jolly, like he's got his groceries in there, everything like that, happy, sitting in the car. And um, the cars that were coming this way, they couldn't do anything because the roads were just narrow. But then traffic lights went and then cars started moving. Then this van came and he was just in a bad mood. Drove, took off that guy's wing mirror, yeah? And just kept on speed and didn't stop, didn't care. Yep, makes sense. The guy who was in the car, he didn't do anything. He still sat in his car. If it was me, I'm driving after that van, but he didn't. He didn't even take a photo or anything like that. I was like, interesting, you know? And even when he left the car to pick up his wing mirror and everything like that, he just seemed so calm and relaxed. And I just... What do you make of that? I don't know. <laughs> That's I don't know. What's wrong with you? <laughs> because it, it was like um, me putting myself in his shoes, what I would have done, the van driver who just for lack of a better word, got away with it. And him who was having a good day, 
but it seemed like he didn't allow it to affect him. So if I think of your example of everyone doing what makes sense to them, yeah, then there's also me thinking about what I would do, what makes sense to me. So like, yeah, I just wonder like, what, what's the, it's like empathy, I guess, another way of putting empathy or putting, like how does, like why, why would that, does it stop me from making more rash decisions? Like what's the benefit, oh, yeah. would you say, yeah. Well, if you're upset about something, what kind of decisions will you make? Mm -hmm. If you're feeling neutral about something, what kind of decisions will you make? If you're feeling positive about something, what kind of decisions will you make? Now, you'll make different decisions in all of those, and some of which might be more helpful, some of which might actually have really bad consequences. I mean, if you go chasing after that <laughs> van driver and, you know, you're upset, van driver's upset, and then you're upset with each other, I mean, that could go a certain way. I suppose the question is, what kind of quality of life do you want to have? You know, you could be, what, what oh, the, the person who just sat in the car who's having a good day with his shopping, he should have got angry, but actually, maybe the rest of his day was okay. Yeah. If you had chased after the van and then it all popped off, you know, and then one of you finds yourself in the police station <laughs> or whatever, I mean, sure. how's your life going? Sure. Now, that's not to say none of this is prescription, right? It's like, you must always be like this in this situation. Like, it's just recognizing that, that there are different ways of being. Yeah. And those different ways of being can have different consequences for us and for other people. One of the side effects of being curious about, or one of the outcomes of being curious about what must be true is beyond empathy, actually. It, it's more into compassion. You know, well, let's do it now. What must have been true for that van driver? Running late. Anything else? Probably didn't have breakfast. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Just in a bad mood, in a rush. Um, just didn't care because he didn't stop. Didn't want to, and he probably knew someone was in the car. Uh, but what must have been true for it to make sense for him to drive in that way and take the wing mirror off? That he can get away with it. Yeah. yeah. Don't know what was going on. But if anything could have um, been true for that to make sense, it already feels different, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, maybe he's late to, I don't know, go and visit an ill relative in hospital. Yeah. And the last thing he needs is somebody bumbling along with bags of shopping smiling like that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because so-and-so is in the hospital and I need to get there. And we don't know. Mm -hmm. But already, you know, being curious about it changes our experience of it. Does it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, okay. If we go straight into judgment about it, about the person, about circumstance, about the impact implications, about the, you know, how does that feel? If you start overthink, if you start thinking about it and all the, it calms you down a little bit because you're essentially rationalizing the reason why someone done something bad to you, I guess. If you're in judgment, how does that feel? If you're in judgment, 
It feels good to an extent. To an extent, yeah. It feels good because you, when you're judging someone, you're also making distinction between them and you. And you're also kind of saying you're better than them. Yeah. Which therefore makes you feel good for that moment. But then no one likes to be judged. Yeah. Spending our lives in judgment of ourselves or other people. Yeah, you do get a bit of a kick out of it. Well, at least I'm not as, you know, whatever word, as that person. But it can quickly tip into something else where, you know, maybe you become righteous and not recognizing the times when you do things that might, people might judge you for. Yeah. Okay, you might never drive a van that way, but maybe something else. And that's the trouble with, with, with judgment is that there's every chance we're going to get judged too. And if we're always doing stuff that makes most sense to us, I mean, it would have made sense to you to judge, mm -hmm. right? It would have made sense to you to chase after the van and to do whatever you did in the moment. Mm -hmm. But if if there's any possibility of it looking different in the cold light of day, or even 10 years later, yeah. then maybe judgment isn't so helpful. So how do, you, how do you get someone in that moment, right? So taking the guy with the shopping and if he was say one of your clients, like how would you get him to the point to not react and to kind of go through the motions of essentially seeing it from the other person's angle? Like how, how would you, like how do you coach someone to get to that level of where he's at kind of thing? Well, I, I tend to use a distinction between what I call natural and what I call normal. And I do that by, I mean, a question I found helpful is, when was the last time you felt the way you wish you could feel all the time? And what was the feeling? Now, for some people, it would be 30 seconds ago. For some people, it might be when they were five. And encourage people to explore, when you're in that feeling, how does life tend to look? How are you around other people? And how do you handle things that aren't going your way? In contrast to when you're not in that feeling, how does life tend to look? How do you, how are you around other people? And how do you handle things that are not going your way? What's your sense of, you know, if there were like two columns of answers, in the feeling and not in the feeling, you know, what kind of um, sense would you get from the kind of words that people might put? Well, I'm going to take a step back, yeah, because when we talk about natural versus normal, what is the distinction between the two? Well, so that feeling of feeling the way you'd like to feel all the time, I call that natural. Right. That's probably how any of us were. And it's different for everybody, of course. It's probably how we were when we were kids, before we stopped overthinking everything as our rite of passage into adulthood. <laughs> um it's always there, but the way I like to see it is that we take ourselves away from it, mm -hmm. and we do that through habitual stuff, mostly thinking. And the reason I call it normal is because it seems normal, because most people are doing it most of the time. One of the interesting things about that question is that most people will say 
when I'm in that feeling, I know that I can handle things that aren't going my way. I'll figure it out. I'll get help. Back to asking for help, right? Normally, when people are not in that feeling, they're normal. They'll be like, oh, it just all seems just totally messed up and you know, overwhelming and whatever other words you want to use, right? So that's interesting to me that we have this resourcefulness that seems available to us when we're in that feeling. Yeah. That we don't have available to us when we're not. Now, back in medieval times, <laughs> there was this distinction that scholars wrote about between ratio, which is kind of, as in rational, this kind of figuring it out, thinking it through, and intellectus, which is that kind of wisdom of a shower thought, right? that kind of wisdom that, that we all share. The things that we know without having been taught is a nice way to look at it. Those two concepts over the years, over the centuries, have kind of been smooshed into one. And we only, generally, we're talking about rational, about ratio. And we don't talk about intellectus. It's really hard to access intellectus when we're up in our head about stuff. You know, when we're just driving in a way that would rip somebody's wing mirror off. Right? Yeah. It's hard to access that, right? To know that it'll be okay if I arrive at the hospital another 30 seconds later. And therefore, I don't need to drive in a way I'm driving. We can't access that when we're upset. The nice thing is that we can handle a lot of stuff. We're built for it. We just lose sight of it. Do you have any, like, tools or techniques to get people back into natural versus normal? Well, we talked about smiling. Mm -hmm. That's one way. So there's like a link then between pressure, natural, normal. I was thinking that actually. I actually was thinking that, yeah. What have you seen? Well, if I go back to the example before when I, when I was talking about uh, my experience, when I wasn't talking to people, I wasn't being friendly, I wasn't being happy. That wasn't me being my natural self. That was me being normal. And that was because of the environment that I was in. And... I think the hard thing is noticing when you're in it and being able to snap yourself out to get back into that natural state. Because even sometimes, like, you might feel that your natural self isn't good enough. And when I say that, I mean it in a sense of you're trying to develop to the next step and you feel that your natural self might be too, I don't know, um, not professional enough or it's not the laughing accountant right. it's the last thing we need around yeah 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 that's stuff like that <laughs> you're never right. going to go anywhere <laughs> you're not going to get that kind of attitude yeah <laughs> it's like how do you leave, leave leave space or or leave space to kind of grow and develop and now that i'm thinking about it the growth is being able to still be jovial or happy when you're in the high pressured environment hmm. rather than being focused in the high-pressure environment. I think the growth is being able to combine the two. And it's back to what experience you create. And have you ever been super busy and loved every second of it? Yeah. Really? I have, yeah. Um, I think it depends what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> Okay, not every second of it, but maybe yeah. there'll be times where I'm like, oh, I love this. Yeah. Even though you're busy. Yeah. Or even though you're working long hours. 
Yeah. Even though it's all going wrong. Yeah. Well, because it's not going wrong. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. How can you be in that experience for it to be okay, if not actually fun? Mm -hmm. And yet there are other times when you're in that experience and it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. How we are is going to be the thing that creates our experience of it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that way around. If you're in natural handling stuff that's not going your way, it's going to be pretty effortless. Yeah. If you're in normal, it's not. Now, people come to coaches like wanting to get good at handling the stuff in normal. Mm -hmm. right? How do I get better at doing work when I'm really stressed? Well, you can try. You know, how do I get better at, going, at driving a van when I'm really angry? I mean, you could probably go on advanced van driving. <laughs> but actually, if you're not angry, you're probably not going to need it. So it's like trying to snap yourself back. It's like a constant reminder of knowing when you're in normal. Because do people, because do people notice when they are in, say, that normal state versus natural? Well, to begin with, no. Just as a fish has no idea it's in water until it you know, jumps or gets caught. The reason it, normal works as a label is because you can't imagine anything else. Yeah. Of course I'm this way because it's it's month end. Mm -hmm. Because we're having an offset inspection or because, you know. Right? We can't imagine that anybody else could be having a different experience of it. Mm-hmm. So until we are aware that other people do, that's the thing that gives us some hope, right? So first of all, being aware of it. Secondly, knowing that it's not a continuous experience, even you know day to day, you might generalize it as, oh, I'm really stressed all the time. But there'll be even, you know, from moment to moment, there'll be times when you're not. Mm -hmm. But again, it's hard to see. If you're normally in normal, then natural is going to seem like a, um, it might seem like a familiar place, but like a hard place to get to. You might even feel guilty being natural. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I shouldn't be a laughing accountant yeah. and there's so much misery going on. <laughs> Talk about accountants. <laughs> oh, that's because I'm a trained one. That's why. <laughs> nah, there you go. Has there ever been a time where you felt it would be wildly inappropriate to be just you? Do you know what? No, I didn't. But now I didn't, yeah. But I'll never forget when I was applying for an internship for a Japanese investment bank. And um, I thought I killed the interview. I thought I smashed it. Like I was answering all the questions and then it even got hot. I even took off my blazer and all the rest of it, yeah. But then I didn't get the, the internship and they were like, oh, um, they didn't feel I was professional enough, yeah. And I was kicking myself. I was like, what did I do? Was I just too me? Like, I, cause I, I remember I brought my natural self to it. Like, and I was what, maybe like 19, 20. Like I was just talking, I was um, doing the best. And I think when I compare that interview skill, like that interview, that interview in particular with other interviews that I've done in the future. And I guess turning up the dial to relevant volume depending on the culture or who I'm speaking to. Um, that's what I found. So I feel like 
there's 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 levels to how natural you can be depending on who you're with. Would you? What would your experience of working in that place be if you had to just be deeply in normal? Oh, I'd hate it. So why would you want to pass the interview? Didn't see it that way. Well, of course not at the time. It'd be like, oh, be, but would you want to? No. That's an excellent What if you work for an investment bank where you could just be yourself? It'd be the best place to work. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, and on a side note, that's that's the thing that always intrigues me about diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. stuff is that nobody's talking about belonging, which to me is it's it's natural. It's like, can you show up as you? Everything else is kind of downstream from that in terms of tactics and strategies and make sure we have these kind of people and those kind of opportunities. And that. it's like, if you can't show up and be you in all the ways that you are, I mean, obviously, you know, there are sort of societal norms and stuff. <laughs> it's not like be totally unfiltered, maybe. But if you can't show up as you, then your diversity and inclusion strategy hasn't worked. Also, to add on to that, yeah, like I feel being in normal also relates back to acting or behaving in a way so that people don't have a negative thing to say about you. How, like, have there, have there been ways in which you've um, coached your clients to kind of get out of that cycle of having, of, of, of needing that external validation and just wanting to focus on themselves? Like, how do you try and get them out of that cycle? Well, again, when you're in natural, you tend to care less about it. You know, I, if if you're overthinking what other people think about you, it's probably just a sign that you're not natural. Like when you were young, did you ever put on like a show for your your family? Do a painting? Bro, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, something that would go on the fridge. Right. Okay. How much time did you spend thinking about whether that painting was worthy of the fridge? whether your performance was worthy of the West End. You probably didn't. You probably just did your thing. Ta-da. And it was like, oh, yeah, mate, marvellous. <laughs> what would happen if you were a kid and you were creating stuff thinking, this had better be the best thing I ever create because that kid over there has got really good, you know, painting skills. Yeah. Or that one's a great dancer or, you know, what's that like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a great experience. <laughs> so it's like you have to kind of check yourself of how you can get back into that natural state. Yeah. And again, I'm not suggesting that, you know, a, a good answer is to say, now, Yemi, just get back into natural and stop. Is that going to work? No. The chances are, though, that, because the way I think about it is like this, what if we were naturally natural and we do stuff that takes ourselves away from it by thinking and judging and that kind of stuff. Then it's not so much we have to do anything to snap back. We just have to let go of it. If it feels like an effort, 
must get into natural. Right? That, that's not it. It's more about how many thoughts a day do you think we have? Me? Yeah? Good <laughs> most. Well, apparently it's about 70,000. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they measured it, <laughs> but it's more than two. It's a lot, yeah. And it, it, you know, it's a lot. What would happen if you thought about every thought? If every thought you gave a good old thinking? You'll get nothing done. Yeah. So, it's that. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't control what thoughts we come up. Oh, I wonder what they'll think about this or me. But in natural, you tend to not care about it so much. It doesn't seem so heavy. It doesn't seem so urgent. Yeah. This is not about what that sort of like, well, it could be worse or, you know, it's not that. It's just about doing less of it. It's like, oh, I am overthinking this a bit. And it's not, I must start thinking in a different direction because that's going to probably not help. Mm. Yemi, cheer up. It's not going to help. But it's like, oh, Yemi, let's go and have an ice cream. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not feeling miserable anymore. Yeah. It's kind of that. And it's not also to say you can never, never be in normal. That's not helpful. No. Right. But it's recognizing that you don't have to get stuck in it. You know, being angry about something, it's fine. It's useful information. It's telling you something about the experience you're having and, and what's important to you and, and all the rest of it. But it doesn't, anger doesn't feel good, kind of by design. I mean, if it felt good, you want to do it all the time. Yeah. But it, it doesn't. So, yeah, feel the anger, notice it, and then... Really? Yeah. I've, I've, I've noticed that sometimes, like, when I'm in a negative space, like, my head can just be overthinking, overthinking. Right. And it's like overthinking into the, the pit, as it were. And then getting used to when certain thoughts happen, I know how it's going to end. And it's like, okay, here's that thought. I see it. I don't want it. Go away. To try and get me back on track. Yeah. As it were. Yeah. I'm yeah, not. it's that. Yeah. And, you know, to me, mindfulness is not so much like, because I used to originally think it was about like not having any thoughts. Yeah. Know? It's like, I think the only way to not have any thoughts is to not be, not be alive. Yeah. To me. I mean, other people might be good at it, but, but it's kind of noticing that, that thoughts come and if we don't hang on to them, they go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's just how it works. Like clouds across the sky, you know, they come, they go. And that when we hang on to them, we give them life. Yeah. When we hang on to them, we fuel them. Right. And and the way to to not do that is just to recognise what how it works. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, there I go overthinking again. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Well, there I am, really angry about what that person said to me. Oh well, that's useful information. But we don't have to get stuck in it. Yeah. And they said that, and that means this, and now that, and that's the third time they've said that. And frankly, I know it's like, oh, and that reminds me of a time when my mum said this when I was, you know, eleven. And before we know it, we've got caught up in a whole load of stuff that certainly isn't happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's either in the future or in the past, and the trouble is, it all looks really real. Yeah, right. It all looks real. Um, so. 
the way back to natural. Smiling could be one. Being curious about the van driver instead of judging. Um, judging is a quick way to get into normal. Right? Um, maybe just doing something else. Just not digging in. Just let it come back to natural of its own accord. That's that's the thing. And of course you're like, yeah, but what about? And it's like, well, when it looks like, yeah, but, that's just a sign that you're in normal. Yeah. Right? Because when you're in natural, you're like, oh yeah, that's all that was. That was a van went past and it clipped somebody's car. Mm. That's the fact of it. The rest of it is the story. Yeah. You know, people talk about you know, protect your peace. It's not about so stopping somebody from taking it. It's about not giving it away. And we do that all the time. How do you protect your peace? Notice when I'm giving it away. It's like, oh, oh, there it was. I just did that again. I saw that van. This poor van driver. If you're if you're watching this, it's like <laughs> you probably had a really bad day, and I'm sorry that we used you as an example. Um, yeah, just notice. Yeah, so, noticing how we are, I think, is like more than half the battle. This honestly, <laughs> no, Tony, thank you. So I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. Oh, so first question. I always love to ask this question. Um, what's the worst piece of advice that you've ever received? <laughs> Oh gosh. Blocked it out. <laughs> well, that I'd never be a people person sort of wasn't quite advice, but that was an observation that I think, well, actually that was really helpful in a way. Mm -hmm. um, worst piece of advice. Or, I don't know. A piece of advice that you listen to and you wish you didn't listen to. Sure. There's probably been loads to do with um, they're usually associated with a should. Yeah. Right? Advice that's rooted in a should. Unless it's the law. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's often very subjective. Because okay. that's, that, that's, that's coming from our map of the world. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. It was interesting for me because, of course, in my professional career, I was paid to give people advice. Mm. And actually, I really like not giving people advice. I'm helping, helping somebody advise themselves yeah. based on that knowing, that intellectus, that we all have that common sense, that, you know, nobody teaches an oak, an acorn to become an oak. Mm. It knows how to do it. It needs the environment, but it knows how to do it. And I don't see why people should be any different. Okay. So giving advice without finding out what somebody already knows mm -hmm. is probably not advised. Good. Um, a documentary that changed your perspective on something. Oh, now there was a documentary about... I was Victor Frankl, I think. Oh, across Victor Frankl. 
Sounds familiar, but never heard of him. Ah, well, he, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. And w- without spoiling it, he went through some very harrowing circumstances in his life. And he came to see that it wasn't a given as to what experience he would have of it. That actually he could have a different experience than other people around him. And that was the thing that actually, by all accounts, saved his life. Psychologically as much as physically. And that's very inspiring. You know, if you could be in the kind of situation that he was in and come out of it okay. And that's not to minimize um, what everybody else went through. You know, it's just that he saw something different. This sounds interesting. Yeah, it's for the next episode. Okay. Yeah, I mean, check it, check his book out. Um, oh, there's loads on YouTube. Okay. Um, and he he saw some stuff around the nature of our experience that that I think is very helpful. That is a documentary on it, yeah? Oh, yeah, loads. Um, if you had one message to give to, like, the world, like, you had a massive billboard, put it across, everyone sees it, what that message be? Oh, so many. It could be protect your peace. It could be overthinking is overrated. It could be just be natural. Something like that. <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. I need a big billboard. But something that help people remember that that we're all creating our experience yeah. of life. And that means we all have a different experience of life. And that means that you're just a, a thought away from having a new experience of life. And to me, that's a massive message of hope mm-hmm. is that whatever's going on, that there's a chance that it's going to be different in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And a final question, where can people find you? You can find me at tonypiper.coach. Awesome. Tony, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure too. Cheers. <laughs>